Welcome to the worst nightmare of all. Reality. Explore the lesser-known stories of our unknown world. Join the pursuit of the paranormal with Ash and Greg. Hey everyone, I'm Greg. I'm Ash. We're Pursuit of the Paranormal, which you'll probably know because you're listening to our podcast. But there are several ways that you could support the show. Um, you can visit our merchandise store where we've got loads of clothing and other bits and bobs there for you. And we also have launched our Buy Me A Coffee campaign. Tell me a little bit more about that, Ash. Yes, yeah, so you can support the show on with a one-off donation. Or you can also join our membership scheme, which gives you different benefits, including shout-outs on the show, discount on the merchandise store, early access to episodes, bonus episodes, all of these different levels of membership. It just helps us carry on doing what we're doing. So you can visit all these places and more at our linktree.com forward slash Pursuit of the Paranormal. Join us tonight is someone who's been featured in many articles, interviews, giving lectures all over the world. Renowned UFO and paranormal researcher, and that is Malcolm Robinson. Welcome, Malcolm. Thank you for joining us. Yes, it's a pleasure to be on your show. A very good evening to you. Yeah, thank, thanks for coming on. Um, I'm eagerly looking forward to, to talking to you about the tonight's subject, which I think uh, this kind of subject goes down well with our listeners as well and some of our most popular episodes have been around this type of case um so yeah thank like ash said thanks for coming on and, and joining us today um so we're going to be talking about a very famous scottish poltergeist case and it's one that you've been researching um since the 80s i believe um and I just wondered, for those that might not have heard about this particular case, would you like to uh, explain just sort of the the brief sort of overview and how you got into looking into the particular case? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've always um, been fascinated by this case. As a young uh, chap growing up in central Scotland, um, I began to hear tales about this socky poltergeist, you know, this destructive poltergeist. Now, admittedly, when the actual uh, case started, I was only three years of age because it commenced in 1960, um, so I was only three. But I knew as I, I went through my life and I got more involved with the paranormal subjects uh, that I just had to get involved with the socky poltergeist. And uh, I actually did three um, investigations on that laterally in life. And that was, I think it was 1987, uh, one time in the 90s, and then laterally 2020. More so um, because I was writing a book about the subject. Uh, I honestly felt that as Scotland's classic poltergeist case, it deserved a standalone book all about it. And I managed to track down several of the witnesses uh, who obviously are older now, but if we start from the beginning, basically it started uh, way back in 1960 when 11 years of age Virginia Campbell was told by her parents that they were moving over to Scotland. They stayed in the small village of Moville in County Donegal in Ireland and <laughs> she really didn't want to go. You know, she was happy in Moville. She had school there. She had her friends there. She had her little dog Toby there. 
Um, but it was set in stone, I'm afraid, you know, they had to go to Scotland. So they arrived in Scotland uh, the latter part of uh, 1960, and they stayed in a street called Park Crescent. And uh, no sooner, no sooner had they arrived in Scotland, than strange things started to happen. And I'll obviously give you a quick, for instance, on some of these events. Um, the first one was when she was sharing a bed with her niece, and um, suddenly the, the two of them heard scratching noises and footsteps walking along the linoleum floor, but nobody was there. Nobody was there at all. Scratching noises, banging noises. So, you know, they were terrified. So they started to go down the staircase and she said that behind them was the sound, it was like a heavy medicine ball. Those big balls that you got in the gymnasium back in the 1960s. Thump, thump, thump behind them on every single step. So the two girls burst into the living room, you know, said that, you know, that there were strange things happening in their bedroom. And um, her mother uh, said, oh, come on now, they're not, <laughs> what are you talking about? She thought it was childish imagination. So her mother and her mother's uh, sister came up the stairs with them, put both girls back to bed, and suddenly bang, 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 all these noises started to happen again. Now, the events transpired over the course of that week. It got so bad that they had to invite the local reverend, the Reverend T.W. Lund, a man of the cloth. And um, so he attended the family dwelling. He went up to Virginia's bedroom and by God, did he not see some astonishing stuff. First of all, he heard the footsteps walking along the linoleum. He was the only guy there. Nobody was walking on the floor. Then he saw Virginia's bed covers rippling, like as if you had thrown a stone into a mill pond. And you know that concentric ripples you get? It was all rippling like that. And then the headboard, the headboard started to vibrate and shake and shake. So, the, the, you know, the whole family was terrified and they actually called in a local doctor, actually two local doctors, Dr. Nisbet and Dr. Logan. And both men attended the family home and Dr. Logan was astonished to see a heavy linen chest. Now, back in 1960, you had these heavy linen chests which stored um, extra sheets, bed covers, duvets, throws, pillows. It was against the wall. And then suddenly it wasn't because it moved 18 inches. It left the wall, traveled, traversed 18 inches across the linoleum floor screeching as it did so and stopped. And then the lid of this chest started flapping up and down, flapping up and down as if you had two invisible people at either end, just throwing it up and down. And uh, he heard the knockings, the rappings, and he, he knew right away this was not a medical episode of any description, you know. And um, as if things couldn't get any worse, they did, they did. Because not only were the events happening in school, sorry, it's happening in the home, they followed the little girl to school, a local primary school. And uh, I've interviewed, as I say, in 2020, I interviewed some of the former classmates of Virginia who are quite elderly now, and also the teacher before she passed away. And the teacher gave me a terrific interview. And she says, Malcolm, I, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. First of all, I had given the class an essay to do. 
So I looked up, and back in 1960, guys, you know, the, the, the classrooms were upwards of 30, 40, 50 kids in a class, you know. And um, she says that everybody was working away. All the little heads were bent down over their jotters, furiously writing away, apart from one little girl. And that was Virginia Campbell. And she had her forearms on the top of the desk lid. She says, Malcolm, I shouted up the classroom, Virginia, what are you doing? Stop that at once, girl, stop that. So as soon as, soon as Virginia lifted her forearms off the desk lid, the desk lid started to move up and down, move up and down. And at that point, a desk which was sitting next to Virginia's desk, no pupil was there, no, nobody was sitting in it, levitated, rose up two or three inches from the ground and clattered back down. And she also said, the teacher said to me in interviews, this is Malcolm, it got even worse. <laughs> I says, well, how could it? Tell me. And she says that on another occasion, Virginia approached my desk. This is what the teacher's saying. Now, back in 1960, guys, they, those big desks were heavy, big wooden things. And she says, on the desk, on the top of the desk was a, a cane pointer, one of those canes that you point to the blackboard. And suddenly it was lying flat on the table. Then suddenly it started to vibrate, vibrate, vibrate. And then it stood up vertically and thump, thump, thump down on the desk in full view of an astonished classroom. At that point, the teacher's desk rose up, rose up two or three inches from the floor. And where the teacher's stomach was in the long part of the desk, the desk revolved swiftly and she found that her stomach was now in the narrow part of the desk. And at this point, uh, a vase which was containing bulbs flew across the, 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 the classroom and smashed into a wall. So you can imagine, guys, you know, the, the kids were in, they were in uproar and they were wanting desperately, desperately to get out of this classroom. So the teacher went to the classroom door and she says, OK, I'll let you all into the classroom and I'll let you into the, the playing uh, playing area. And she opened the door, but she couldn't. She says, no, I could not open this classroom door. It was like there was an invisible heavy man on the other side of the door who was pulling it at the other side. I couldn't open it. I just couldn't open it. And then after maybe about 20 seconds or so, uh, the door just sprung open. And it was like uh, one of those Tom and Jerry cartoons where all the kids trying to three, four, five abreast trying to get through this one slender door. And um, it was just a, an astonishing case, absolutely astonishing. Now, not only that, both the, uh, Virginia and her niece was getting pinched, prodded, poked uh, on, the, on the face. And also in front of the ministers, because they did an exorcism in the house, they saw a pillow which was next to Virginia, nobody was sleeping next to her at that time, depressed, depressed right down as if a secondary invisible head had just rested on that pillow. And at that point, the pillow, which was underneath Virginia's head, rotated, rotated 90 degrees. Then there were doors opening and closing of their own volition, etc. Even the neighbours next door could hear the bangings and rappings as well. So they said, well, what, what are we going to do here? What do you do? So they decided to take little Virginia 
to another family's friend's house in a small town called Dollar in Clackmannanshire in central Scotland. So maybe if we take her to somebody else's house, maybe it'll all stop. <laughs> it didn't. They took the girl four or five miles to the wee town of Dollar and the same thing happened. Doors banging, things falling off the shelves, etc., etc. And um, they, it was just unbelievable what was transpiring there. Uh, in my research in regards to that case, uh, there was quite a few surprises, a few curved balls <laughs> thrown into me because not only was that house in Park Crescent haunted, but so were three more houses in the very same street, in the very same side of the street. And I gave a lecture uh, last year in Saukey and at uh, the Saukey Town Hall, and it was absolutely packed. We, we almost ran out of seats, over 250 people there. And I had one of the witnesses, one of the former classmates of Virginia, as a kind of prize at the very end of the talk. You know, I said, ladies and gentlemen, we have someone who was actually there, and he's going to tell you all about it. So he stepped forward. And he just said it as it was, you know, and uh, it was a great ending to a, to a great night. But to, to finish the story, basically, um, we I learned that um, she moved with a family. She left Saukey and she moved down to Bedford in England. Then she moved again from Bedford to Kempston, which is a small town adjacent to Bedford. Um, but we don't know exactly where she is in Kempston. And boy, that would be great if we did. But it was an astonishing case, and it, it really deserved a book primarily all about it, you know, and, of course, the other houses in Park Crescent. Um, and people say to me, you know, well, is, was it built in a graveyard? You know, no, absolutely not. When Before those houses were built, it was just farmer's fields. No graveyards or, or nothing else, just farmer's fields. Crazy case. Well... <laughs> So in other cases that we've we've discussed on the podcast, it revolves around a young girl, sort of between the ages of like 11 to 15, um, and everything seems to be centred around them. So you've got the Enfield Poltergeist, you've got a Battersea Poltergeist. Um, and interestingly, the Battersea Poltergeist, um, the neighbours were hearing the noises as well. Even people mm-hmm. next door and the door down were, were actually hearing the sounds. It was so loud. So do do they know sort of what might have started it all? So we we talked about the move from Ireland. Do you think that that was so profound on Virginia that that stirred some kind of emotional response? It's a possibility. And what we don't truly know is if she had any poltergeist manifestations while she stayed in Mobile. And then, you know, they maybe thought, well, if we move to Scotland, maybe that will stop. So that's what I don't know. So it's questionable if uh, once the disruption that was caused by the move, that she she really didn't want to come to Scotland, that uh, maybe things happened. But what I can say is that I certainly, I certainly don't subscribe to the views held by some of my other paranormal colleagues who state that there is some kind, some kind of paranormal force that exudes from the bodies of teenagers going through puberty, which somehow propels chairs and the like across the room. I mean, let's be realistic here. Uh, There are literally 
thousands of teenage kids going through puberty right now. So if this theory, this sexual energy theory, uh, is set out to explain that, then surely it stands to reason that you would have poltergeist cases in nearly every single town in this country with all this disruption, the sexual energy and stuff. So I don't hang my hat on that particular theory, certainly not. So what's your what's your theory around it in general? Do, what, do you have a theory? I can, I can, well, it's a theory and it's a, a speculation, of, for want of a better word. I can only speculate that um, some form of demonic entity or, or whatever was somehow attached to Virginia because what I forgot to say a moment ago is when I spoke to some people down in Bedford, the lady says, oh, did you know she had a poltergeist down in Bedford as well? I went, really? So it followed her from Soki down to Bedford. Um, so maybe it's, it could be some form of mischievous entity uh, whatever, you know, um, I, I don't truly know. All I do know is that when I set out to, to investigate all these claims over 40 years ago, <laughs> I set out to disprove it. You know, what a load of rubbish. There are no such things as ghosts and poltergeists and UFOs and what have you, but by golly, I soon got that change. You know, I mean, I've said on other shows, I've had my hair pulled by nothing. I've had my face slapped by nothing. I've been kicked and prodded by nothing. So I soon came off the, the sceptical fence. And but I mean, scepticism is fine. You know, we absolutely need sceptics. We need to look at the other side of the coin. It, it's so important that we do that because we could miss something else. Um, the poltergeist phenomena is clearly very destructive, as we all know. And it's not it's not very nice for anybody that has to go through it. So... Was there any sort of clear evidence of this happening? I know we've got witnesses like the Reverend and the doctors and the teacher and the school kids, but was there any kind of captured evidence, any kind of like photographs, that kind of thing, recordings? I really wish they were. I mean, uh, when I say, well, they were recordings, I'll come to that in a moment, but there were certainly, sadly, not any photographs. Um, I mean, the... They did keep a diary of every paranormal event, which was given over to uh, one of the, as either a doctor or the Reverend London, I think it was actually Dr. Logan, and he was reading out extracts from it, and he's even talking about Virginia's face going red, and here's a, a crazy one, Virginia's bed covers changing colour. Now, that's quite <laughs> bizarre as well, but yes, they were recordings, Dr. Logan recorded that. Uh, and uh, it was initially put out in 1960 by BBC Radio Scotland on a, a programme called Scope, which they had uh, interviews with Dr Logan, Dr Nisbet, uh, some reverends, and they played the sounds, the recordings, the knockings and the rappings, which was generated allegedly by the supporter guys. And I played those sounds uh, at my lecture here in Saki in November, and it just blew the place away because... I mean, anything can be made up, etc. We all know that, you know, but back in 1960, we never had internet or iPhones and iPads. We just had the basics. Yes, we did have cameras, but I'm surprised that uh, uh, certainly there were any cameras going about. Um, but as far as actually, wait a minute, it's all coming back to me now. <laughs> there were any footage, so dearie me, there were any footage taken of some of the events in that house. 
and the the BBC managed to take that from the family, and I've tried so hard to get that back, and I, we can't trace where that video footage went to. It pains me to say that it may be stuck in some filing cabinet in a dusty hall somewhere in the confines of BBC, you know, so maybe one of these days we may get to see that cine footage, but um, so to answer your question, yeah, recordings, audio, and cine, cine footage, yeah. Well, you mentioned some previous investigations that took place in the 80s and 90s. Were there any outcomes or theories suggested by them that could explain what was happening? Yeah, I mean, the main guy who actually investigated the man on the ground was uh, William Owen. Uh, he came up from England to, to uh, look at this phenomena. And he stayed a few nights in the Saucy home and he saw these... Uh, I mean, all this can be found on the internet. And he heard and saw a lot of strange stuff himself. And he was convinced that there was a phenomena of sorts ongoing in that house. He was a, a really fantastic researcher. And it's just such a shame that I was too <laughs> too young at, at that time because these are the bread and butter. These are the type of cases that you and I and your colleagues there would love to get involved with. And really with today's technology, really bring to bear what's been seen. Um, of course, I'm sure you'll agree, and I've said it many times on other shows that even if we do manage to get the best audio or the best pictorial evidence, be it still, be it video, the skeptics will say, you've made it on computer. Very good. Oh, that's smashing. You've done a great job there, Malcolm. So sometimes it's difficult, even when you have fantastic evidence, the skeptics will say, no, no, I'm not accepting that. No, that I'm not taking that. But we're living, as I said, we're living in the Steven Spielberg age of DreamWorks laboratory, so anything can be manipulated onto computer to look real or not. But thankfully, that same technology can be utilised to determine if it's a stuck-on ghost into a room or a piece of thread supporting a UFO model. So the technology works both ways. It, it can unmask things and uh, determine what's truly going on. I think... Um like you just mentioned about the technology the fact that some of these enduring cases happened way before the internet way before um sort of really a lot of home video all that kind of stuff so i think that's what also makes them such amazing cases because you're you're relying on witness testimony from usually doctors police those kind of sort of experts, yeah. as you will, for their sort of um, accounts of what's been going on. Um, and th the cases do all seem to have like a similar way that they kind of start off quiet and there's a few knocking noises, a bit of scratching around the house. And then they sort of full-blown escalate up to people being hurt or following them to different places and it's 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 interesting that before all the days of technology and widespread news of that kind that all these cases seem to be very similar and i just wonder what what your thoughts are on why these cases tend to to be so similar in nature yeah that's a good point it's a very good question um, and clearly they are similar very much so I mean, the veracity of evidence in the Saki case is, stands head and shoulders above any other case of its nature in Scotland. You know, we've got church ministers, we've got doctors, we've got um, ministers who attended to do the kind of, it was like a cleansing ceremony. 
But to, to answer your question, they, yes, they do seem to be, obviously they're destructive, we know that, they can harm people as well. The Enfield Poltergeist is a good example. Probably for me personally, the best English case is the South Shields Poltergeist, uh, investigated by two very good friends of mine, uh, Darren Ritson and, and Mike Hallowell, where one of the guys uh, was suddenly said, my, my back's burning, my back's burning, and they lifted his shirt up, and you could see claw marks or, or scratch marks suddenly developing on his back, you know. It wasn't a case as if they were already there and they were old. They, you could physically see them moving and, and being generated on his back. Uh, so the, the poltergeist is a very nasty, destructive, evil sort of presence, and um, it's... I mean, to answer that in another way, and uh, is that first and foremost, let me say that I'm, I'm a Christian spiritualist. I, be, I believe wholeheartedly in life after death, only, only, only because of the witnesses I've spoken to, they have spoken to clinical physicians, etc. It's not oxygen starvation to the brain. Uh, clearly, some people do go and visit the spirit world and near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences and come back. But when we look at the poltergeist, it would appear to me that there's some bad presence out there, um, just like yin and yang, good and bad, you know, that it latches on to certain people um, for goodness knows what reason. It's not as if young Virginia was playing with, the, uh, with a, a Ouija board or anything, you know, she, no, too young. That's not to say that it still don't do it. Um, because as we know, the Ouija board for it does work for sure, you know. And my belief is that the Ouija board attracts what we call lower astral entities, people who will masquerade as your Uncle James, who will masquerade as your Auntie Jean. They'll just tell you anything you want to know. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's just my own personal opinions. I could be totally wrong. I'm not an expert. The media always say that, you know, you're an expert. No, I'm not. I know nothing. Um, I've just had over 40 years experience. And all I do know personally is, yeah, there's there's something to be answered there. Absolutely. So you just said that you got over 40 years experience in the, in this field. What was it that first got you interested or what introduced you to the paranormal field right back at the start? Oh, there was a number of things. Um, <laughs> When I, when I was in primary school, um, you know, I was just, what, I'd be seven or eight, I don't know, around about that. Um, they, we were given a wee book to read uh, about uh, this alien who crashed into this forest. And uh, there was two young boys who bunked off school and they just walked into the woods and found this wee guy. So they went on this adventure and that captivated my young mind, you know, this meeting this man from outer space. And then my family used to take us down to Blackpool, uh, Southport, Skegness, Scarborough, and every time I went on a holiday, the first thing I went to was a ghost train. <laughs> and I'm bringing up a story here, guys. So I went on to the ghost train, and I just was marvelled at that. And then I started to, uh, you know, watch the, the Day the Earth Stood Still movies and uh, all these kind of sci-fi movies. And again, it's like putting petal in a car. You're building up this this desire. But I still felt, come on, there's no such things as this. And then I started reading the works of uh, Eric Van Daniken, uh, Charles Berlitz, Jenny Randalls, uh, and all these people. 
and uh, in 1979 I formed my own society entitled uh, Strange Phenomena Investigations and it was on that particular year that uh, to answer your question what I've just mentioned was we kind of the first steps given me an interest and uh, it was 1979 that uh, the Bob Taylor uh, Deckman Woods encounter really took me off the fence but just backtrack I'll just backtrack a little because one of the strange things that happened to me as a wee boy again maybe I was about 14 15 teenager and my mother came into the room and she says here you go son here's a, a pair of new shoes for you now I didn't like them <laughs> I didn't like these shoes and I threw them down towards the couch the join at the couch where you sit and your back that little join you know they were definitely going for the couch well they stopped in midair, they rose up and they went right through the window, smashed through the window. And my mother, she hadn't seen that. She had turned away and she just heard the smash of the window and she says, why did you do that? And I went, I, I didn't. I really didn't. You know? So that was kind of bizarre. And um, I mean, there have been so, so many, but 79 was when I got off my backside and decided to really chase the ghosts as it were and find out what's real, what's not. And um, 79 was, was, that was a massive case of the Dickman Woods and uh, I've just been on this journey, this endless journey. So obviously the Dickman Woods incident is the UFO incident in the woods. Um, do you think that there's a link between UFOs and other aspects of paranormal, like ghosts or cryptids and things like that? It's a funny question, but it's, a, it's an intelligent question. It's one I've been asked numerous times in a... I don't truly really know if there is or not. You know, this umbrella, that everything falls under this umbrella. The paranormal is seamless, that it can interact. Like, and I keep saying to people that the only time it's really interacted where the two have met, for me personally, was a ghost case that I dealt with down in Devon um, quite a few years ago. And the lady was seeing a whole range of paranormal events, um, but she was always seeing this little girl and, and a pinifer dress, those kind of dresses that you got in that TV show, Little House on the Prairie, which was screened in America and the UK in the 1960s. But there was a wee girl, ghost girl, that would appear at the foot of a bed. And then she says, but I don't believe what I was looking at. What do you mean? The little girl was at the foot of the bed and at the right hand side against the wall was a small grey being, a small grey alien. So the, the two were in the same environment and that's the first and only time I've personally he heard of that. But um, there's a possibility that um, there is this, this realm where these things can come in, you know, and um, so they may be, but I, I truly don't know. I really don't know. You mentioned a little bit um, earlier about Steven Spielberg when we were talking about sort of CGI and things like this. I believe that you were almost working on something with Steven Spielberg some time ago. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of people know about this one. It was back in 1994, I had a phone call from a journalist from the Scottish Sun newspaper, and he said, Malcolm, Ted Danson, the actor, is doing a movie about Loch Ness, and we're just contacting you today, Malcolm, just for some quotes from Nessie. Have you anything you could tell us? I went, well, yeah, you phoned at the right time. What do you mean? I says, well, in the last few weeks, I've devised this trap this trap that could possibly capture Nessie. Oh, really? Tell me more. 
So um, if I can ask you guys to imagine in your mind's eye a boxing ring. You've got the ropes, yeah? You've got four sides, you've got the ropes. Only it would be much, much more taller, more, very, very big, very tall and vertical. And that would be secreted into the floor of Loch Ness. Now on these ropes would be these spherical balls containing radio biopsy darts. Inside this boxing ring effect would be a machine that continuous, continuously put, puts out fish puree as an attractant. So any large body pushing, pushing against the ropes would release like a grenade, all these radio biopsy darts penetrating the creature, neutralizing it, not to kill it, but just to knock it out. And once those, those uh, ropes were breached, they would allow surface divers to come down and try and extract the creature. So he went away quite happy. And, <laughs> and then about a few days later, he went, you'll never believe who's interested in your trap. I went, who? Steven Spielberg. I said, you're joking. He says, seriously, Malcolm, I put this to him. And he's happy to put up the money to make this happen. Really? Yeah. So this made massive press in Scotland. I think it eventually leaked down to England as well. Um, but the sad story was that uh, as weeks went by, we heard that uh, he had lost kind of faith in that, you know, and he went on to do other, The Lost World, I think it was, <clears throat> other movie projects and stuff. But today I still honestly believe, guys, that um, it's, it's still a viable um, project. And uh, if we had the money, we could possibly make it happen. Would you believe that Nessie is there? I believe there's a creature there which is not a monster. It's not a, a plesiosaur because plesiosaurs cannot extend their neck as they are depicted at Loch Ness. Plesiosaurs couldn't do that. Uh, there's eels in Loch Ness. There's also seals in Loch Ness, would you believe, who poke their heads up through the water. They come through the Caledonia Canal. And um, they, I mean... <laughs> Anybody going to Loch Ness will see the conditions change very dramatically in seconds. To answer your question, I do believe that there is something large in excess of 20 feet in Loch Ness. It could be some form of large sturgeon fish or maybe a, a, an unknown species. I mean, back in 1987, uh, Operation Deep Scan, they had about oh, eight or nine boats and on these boats contained the most sophisticated sonar at that time. And they swept, they were all abreast, they were all aligned, went up and down, up and down Loch Ness, sweeping it all the time. And they got six anomalous returns that they could not identify on this sonar. And these were guys who were trained in sonar returns. Was it a, a group shoal of fish? Was it something else? They couldn't explain it, you know. And uh, I mean, Loch Ness is a big, big part of my life. Uh, growing up again, obviously, in Scotland, um, my father regaled me with tales of the, the creature. We went up, and I remember as a wee boy, about 11 years of age, on a pleasure cruiser, it was going up and down Loch Ness. I grabbed my father's binoculars, searching in hopes of seeing Nessie. And there it was, three humps in the water. And I ran to the back of the boat shouting, I've seen Nessie. And all the tourists are looking at this silly wee boy, you know, claiming that he's seen Nessie. Now, as a 64-year-old man, I realise what that was. So if you've got a boat traversing south and a boat traversing north, 
they'll create what's known as a standing wave. So as they propel the water north and south, this wave from the bow of the boats meets, meets, meets in the middle, and it's like humps. And uh, so if you've got people coming from South America or Canada and they see that, they may misconstrue that as a Nessie, and it's, it's not at all, you know, not at all. As you know, I went down in the submarine, uh, Loch Ness submarine, uh, 1994 as well. That was great. What did you uh, find anything when you went down in the submarine? No, um, the, the story behind that one was that um, they were taking members of the public down for, um, for an hour into the depths of Loch Ness. I think it was £69.50 or something for the hour. And the reason they were taking money was to help fund the uh, expedition. What they were doing, they were doing core samples of the loch floor. It's just like if you cut down a tree and you'll see all the tree rings and you'll, you'll get to know how old that tree is. Well, in the sedimentary aspect of Loch Ness, you drill down, pull it back up, open it up, and you can see all the various layers of sediment. And it tells you how many years that's been you know, left there. So the, the, the submarine itself was about just over 20 feet or so, uh, sponsored by Swatch watches. Uh, it was a red and white submarine. The front uh, of the submarine uh, had a very toughened glass portal to see out of. Above that, you had five or six very strong halogen lights. And there were a portal on the bottom, bottom of it as well at the back end of the submarine. Full of gauges, full of all instrumentation, very, very, very claustrophobic. If you were of that nature, you would not have enjoyed that at all. And we went down to a depth of over just 400 feet or so. I mean, Loch Ness is just under 900 feet. And um, all it was, to be honest, guys, it was just like a sandy floor with uh, some rocks jutting up. And, um, you know, a I've got the footage on YouTube. If anybody wants to look for that, you should be able to find it. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Never saw an essay, but uh, just to be there was just fantastic. One of the few guys in the world that's had that opportunity to go down in that submarine. So, yeah, I, I, I'm claustrophobic, so you wouldn't get me anywhere like that. <laughs> um, so hats off to you for that. Um, I just want to go back. So... Just slightly, we were talking about Ouija boards. Have you ever done a Ouija board? Yes, I have. Yeah, I have. And um, I'm always thinking, as my colleagues pushing it, because, you know, when we started doing a Ouija board, we're all teenagers and we're having a laugh. And you, you think your friend's, you know, pushing the, the plachette. And um, you soon realise that when you, everybody was taking their fingers off one by one, it was only myself that was, had a finger on it, and then I took my finger off it, and it's flying about everywhere. It's moving around the, the board of its own volition. It's astonishing, you know. But um, it is, I mean, it was manufactured, well, one of the manufacturers was John Waddington, I believe, who distributed the Ouija board in the States. And um, it was just a fanciful kind of a, a game, they, they, they put it as. But obviously, we soon know that uh, a lot of kids were getting troubled by it. It was taken off the market, etc. But I mean, you can still buy an Ouija board of various descriptions from the internet, you know. And um, but as a, for me, it's a dangerous tool. Have we used it on investigations? Yes, we have. Would I would I use it again? It would probably be the last resort, but um, because we know they they do work. But again, we don't know 
if it's truly earthbound spirits, it's masquerading, as I said a moment ago, as, as one of your uncles and that, and giving you false information. Um, but yeah, it, it, we've certainly used it before, as has table tilting. I've seen, you know, uh, we were doing a table tilting experiment, and there was about six of us with our hands on this heavy table, circular table, and it rose up into the air about four or five inches, and nobody had their foot under the, the, the one of the, the legs. We could see that, you know. And then it started to dance about, dance about. We actually had to walk it through the hallway and into the kitchen, and that is from the living room. Now, initially, this, um, this table was a very, very heavy wooden circular table. And when it was, it went 45 to 90, 45 degrees, raised up on two legs. And I went, okay, thank you. We know that you're here. Could you put the table back down again? So when the table got to an angle, guys, you would expect gravity to kick in and just drop it like a stone. Remember, our hands are on top, not below this table. So gravity, when it got to a certain angle, should have went bang. It didn't. It softly, softly, softly went back and rested back on the carpet again. Astonishing. So was this in a known haunted or location? No, actually, in point of fact, it was just at a friend's house. So um, it wasn't uh, at any haunted location. I, mean, I gave a lecture there um, last year. Um, down in Bournemouth at a big psychic event and they were trying the Frank's box, table tilting, a Ouija board, trying so many different things and I watched astonishingly as another heavy table was walking back and forth with some participants who was, who was doing that, you know. So either, as the sceptics would have you believe, it's some external energy from everybody's body doing this. Um, who knows? Maybe, maybe it is. So on that note then, is it possible that um, a human or a young girl can project some kind of energy out? Yeah, I mean, if we look at that possibility, and I know I said earlier I don't believe that that's a possibility, if people can move tables and if it's not spirit, it's their own energy, then I would need to come off my horse and say, yes, it's a possibility that certain yeah. people can do that, uh, make things fly off a shelf, etc. And um, so it's in there for sure, yeah. 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 So is there any particular uh, experiment or sort of exercise or method that you would use that you found more uh, successful um, in paranormal investigations? Um, yeah, um, plain and simple, using a very, very good psychic. Now, I know we're, we're in the age of, as I say, DreamWatch Laboratory, it's, it's 2022, and people are using Frank's Box, we're using uh, EVP machines and a whole range of gadgetry, as you see on the television nearly every day. Um, that's fine, but I'm from the old school. Um, sometimes it's your own senses and a good, good psychic. I remember we worked with this lady and every time we were asked to go into an alleged haunted house, so I'd watch her, I'd go in behind her and she'd walk through the door and it was either 50-50, either she would nod her head, nod her head very, very gently as if to say, yeah, there's something here, or she would shake her head. And um, so, 
yes, I don't, I don't say that using instrumentation is not a bad thing, um, but I think sometimes your own senses, uh, your own getting it on audio tape, EVP, on a recorder, but using a good psychic, because back in the day when we were doing a lot of investigations, uh, the people would come to us and say, look, please, please help us find out what's going on here. And if you can, get rid of them. They're really upsetting us. So once we um, got the, the information through our psychic names, etc., and why, why are you here? Why are you here? You're upsetting people in this house. Tell us what's, what's going on. She would gain all this information and then would do a cleansing ceremony. And by the way, the family would move out of the house. Move out of the house and give us free reign for us to bring in, you know, the psychics, etc. So they would come back about six or seven in the morning and say, how did you get on? How did you get on? And then our psychic would say, well, can you take this name and that? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So we'd manage to kind of use this cleansing ceremony and say, look, you don't belong here. I know it sounds Hollywood, guys, but <laughs> we said that there's another place for you to go to. And nine times out of ten, it generally worked. It worked, you know, a dream. And um, that's what we do, yeah. So you sort of mentioned then about another place where they can go. What do you think that other place is? Well, I do think, as I say, I'm of an age now where I've, I've tried so, so hard um, to disprove all these things. And of course you can. Of course you can disprove a lot of it. A lot of it's absolutely bloody nonsense. It really is. And uh, you've got all these people making claims, etc. And we have to be very, very careful when we are interviewing people, you know, if they're on medication, hallucination, uh, you know, all these things. They're looking for a better house. Let's make up a ghost. Let's make up a ghost story and get out of the house. So as a researcher, you have to be very, very careful. But to answer your question, where is this other place? Well, it's certainly, well, it's not up there, it's up there. It's all around you, but on a different vibrationary frequency. That's my belief and many others believe. And um, there is this other place for us to go to. We, each and every one of us, will see our mothers or fathers, brothers and sisters who's passed before us. That's my, as a Christian spiritualist, I firmly believe that, backed up by not just faith, but by evidence as well. And um, so I, I, this other place is, is meant to be fantastic beauty, beautiful colours, beautiful sounds. I know it sounds Hollywood, I, I know that, it's crazy, but... Uh, a fantastic landscapes, etc. Now, I'm sure you're going to ask me, surely that can't be the place for the likes of Adolf Hitler or Pol Pot and all these guys, you know. And I agree, you know, for anybody who goes on to the other side, there's, it's not just one happy place. There's going to be at least seven realms of different variants how you led your life. So if the likes of a, a, a serial rapist or a murderer or, you know, Adolf Hitler, they'll certainly, I would imagine, find themselves down that tree, down that ladder, down in the basement, for want of a better word. Not hell as such. I don't think, um, you know, it's as bad as that. But they, they have the opportunity to progress, although I don't like that in the case of Adolf. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, it's people might say, well, Malcolm, it's pure speculation. How do we know that? Yes, it's only coming through psychic mediums who's relaying this information. Um, but one thing's for sure, guys, I am not I am not afraid to die. Obviously, I don't want to be run over by a bus, but uh, the fear of death with this knowledge and this information, this research has convinced me we all live again. 
Uh, I'll tell you a very quick story. Um, when I lived in Hastings in East Sussex, there was a lady came to one of my meetings in Hastings and she says, Malcolm, one of the leading surgeons is off ill at the hospital just now. And I says, well, well that's fine. You know, it's a, it's a traumatic job, a leading surgeon, you know. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Well, tell me. Well, he was walking down the corridor of this hospital and he saw an elderly man looking at the ceiling and he looked very confused. And the, the surgeon went up to him and says, are you okay, sir? You all right? Uh, I, I don't, I think so, I think so. And at that point, the surgeon's pager went off him. The chap, the surgeon went, excuse me, sir, just bear with me a moment, hold on. So he looked at his pager and he was wanted in resource. The surgeon was wanted in resource. So the surgeon turned around to, to address the old man again, but he wasn't there. He must have went through some swing doors in the hospital. So I think you know what's coming, guys, but there is a twist. So the surgeon went into the operating room and there's that there's a man, shirt open, paddles on his chest, being pushed and pumped back to, to life. It was the very same man that the surgeon just saw seconds ago in the corridor. So here's the twist. They looked at the closed circuit television cameras and you saw the surgeon walking down the corridor, stopping, looking up and speaking to nothing, nothing at all. And um, so, you know, there's so many stories. It's like a jigsaw, guys. And uh, it took me many years to come to terms with that because I always look for the skeptical explanation, uh, the oxygen starvation in the brain, um, the temporal lobe epilepsy, it could make people misconstrue things, but shove that aside, it's real. So what what are your thoughts on um, haunted items? Do you believe that um, certain objects can contain memories or be possessed, for example, um, by some kind of spirit? Absolutely, uh, totally. Uh, psychometry is a massive thing. It's a, it's a gift for those who can do psychometry. And what you mean, what I mean by that is holding a, an old medal, a war medal. And you don't know who it come from, but the, the psychic holding it will say it will tell you everything about that gentleman because it, the very emanations has been impregnated into the very fabric of that medal. Or it could be a coin, it could be anything. And uh, a quick, for instance, on that one, chaps, is um, I gave a lecture down in England uh, again not so long ago, and they were doing psychometry. And so the lady was going about with a silver tray. There were people putting rings down and watches down and this down and that down. And I put a little stone down. And she looked at me and she went, eh, what's, okay. So she did everybody first. There were some hits, there were some misses. Then I was last, this little stone in her silver tray. She picked it up and she let out a scream and she threw it away. What the hell is this? She knew I had given it. What have you given me, Malcolm? Never mind what I've given you. What are you getting, madam? And she proceeded to tell me. She said, all I can see is horror and misery and strife and everything. It's so horrible that the emanations coming from this is abysmal, Malcolm. Please tell me, what, where did you get it? And I calmly says, well, I got it from Auschwitz-Birkenau, um, from one of the crematoria that was uh, bombed up by the Russians. 
and you're not meant to take things from these historic sites, but when the guide wasn't looking, chaps, I bent down and picked up a small stone from that. So to answer your question there, these emanations of all those sad people who lost their lives at Auschwitz uh, somehow impregnated into the very fabric of the walls of that crematoria. And um, this lady, this psychic, held that stone for a nanosecond, threw it away, and she was picking up that. So to answer your question, yeah, the very fabric of haunted chairs, people may have died in a chair, and his emanations are there. It's endless. It's really endless. How about um, haunted dolls, those kind of toys and and those kind of things? Yeah, I have a... I maybe contradict myself here, but I have a problem with that because a lot of people are selling allegedly haunted dolls on the internet and they're making fast bucks off it. And I, the, where's the evidence that this is a haunted doll? You know, how, how can you physically prove that? And I've no problem in haunted objects, uh, for sure, you know. Um, you, I mean, you get haunted buses, you get haunted aircraft, and all the rest has been seen by people. Haunted dolls, I still think, are probably real to an agree, but I'd be very, very careful where that haunted doll is coming from, you know. Um, a, a quick, for instance, again, Christ, I've got so many stories. <laughs> the the Aloe advertiser, a local newspaper some years ago, had a wee doll on the front page called Shuggy. And it was meant to be a haunted doll. And uh, the lady um, who got the doll, I think it was from the West Indies or somewhere, and um, she was a bit scared of it. And um, she dropped she dropped it. And the, the leg of this doll broke. And I think you know what's coming. Following day, she fell out the back step and broke her leg. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question, I think there is some substance to some haunted dolls, but not them all. There's a lot of nonsense with a lot of them. So you've authored uh, many books on different aspects of paranormal, of UFOs, but your most recent book, which is called Please Leave Us Alone, which is about a family that moved from America to Ireland and have had all sorts of stuff happen to them. Just want to give us just a quick overview of that book and then where, we, where our listeners can find it. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, it's a terrifying story um, because it contains elements that we spoke about earlier, that crossover elements, where not only have we got small grey beings being seen inside the family home, you've got what's known as a hat man, shadow people, and these small creatures, UFOs been seen. But to set the story, yeah, they, they had a lot of problems over in America. Um, Patricia Hessian did but a lot of strange happenings when she was a child, way too much to go into here. And then when she moved to, to Ireland um, and she settled down in Ireland, suddenly the whole house was invaded by paranormal presences, uh, which consisted, as I said, of the greys, but primarily of what's known as the heart man. Now, what the heart man is, for those who may not know, um, is a, like a tall, shadowy person who allegedly stands in the corner of your room and he wears like a trilby-like hat or a fedora-like hat. And sometimes his face is completely black or he will have these kind of staring eyes, menacing eyes. He doesn't approach the bed or anything like that. He's just there and it can scare the bejesus out of you for sure, you know. And um, she also uh, woke up with these small little creatures moving all over her in the bed, etc. as well. There was a picture uh, which was above the fireplace. It started to vibrate, came out several inches from the wall and just smashed down 
crashed down onto the carpet. And um, there have been uh, balls of light, these orbs been seen flitting about uh, the, the room. And when she got in touch with me, I mean, it's so much more than what I've just briefly spoken about, guys. But when she got in touch with me, I realised that they, their story had to be told without a shadow of a doubt, which we did do uh, in, in the book, Please Leave Us Alone, which is uh, available on Amazon. Uh, but the reason why myself and people like me write books is not to say, look at me, you know, we get these stories out to assist people. It's like a jigsaw, you know, maybe other people will come forward and say, my God, I've never told anybody, but I've read your book and I want to tell you it's exactly what happened to me. And that's what we did in the, one of the chapters in the book as well. We had many other stories um, from various parts of the UK of people who say, yeah, it happened to us. We've, we've seen the heart, man. We've seen these shadow people. And also in the book, even though I firmly believe wholeheartedly in the mother and daughter, I still, at the end of my books, more so with this book, I tried to say, well, could it be epilepsy? Could it be uh, hallucinations? Could it be this? Could it be that? Because if I don't finish any of my books on a sceptical slant, the sceptics will say, but did you think about that? You know, so I tried to cover all bases, but uh, it's uh, it's a sad thing when you've got all these um, paranormal happenings in the family home, and we tried through priests to get rid of it. They've had so many different blessings, holy water sprinkled in it. Nothing works. Nothing works. Amazing. Looking forward to reading that one. Well, thank you, uh, Malcolm Robinson, for joining us. Been excellent just hearing these stories and the work that you've been doing. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. No problem. Well, thank you very much for inviting me uh, on the show uh, tonight, guys. And uh, I just hope that uh, your listeners understand that we certainly live in a, a very strange world. Uh, we don't know it all. We're learning all the time. Uh, a lot of things may fall by the wayside. We may have answers for them, you know. But uh, at the end of the day, Greg and Ash, you have been two great guys. You know your stuff. Keep at it, and God bless you. Pursuit of the Paranormal with Ash and Greg.